Well, Jenny Owens is a singer-songwriter. Many of you probably heard of her. She's recorded a number of albums singing about her Savior, Jesus Christ. But you know, the song that sticks out the most to me that she sings is actually a hymn. It's the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. The reason the song sticks out to me, it's, it's not because it's particularly a different arrangement or it's got instrument, creative instruments. It's, it's honestly quite simple. It's just, just her on piano. But the reason that this version of Be Thou My Vision sticks out to me is because she is singing those words to the Lord, Be Thou My Vision, when she is physically blind. And there's something about that that resonates physically blind, and yet Ginny Owens sees clearer than most people. She sees clearly who her Savior is, and her life is a reflection of one who gets it. She gets what, sadly, most people who can see just fine fail to grasp. She gets what the disciples up till now have failed to grasp. Now today, we finish up the first half of the book of Mark. After this, we're going to take a break throughout the summer, and we'll come back to Mark in the fall. I'm going to do a short series starting next week on the church, which I'm calling Church Basics. And then after that, we'll do our annual elders series. We're going to preach on several sections from the book of Acts. And so it promises to be a very exciting summer, and we look forward to it. But are you ready to dive in and finish up the first half of Mark? Oh, all right. Somebody out there is excited. Love it. Well, up to now, like I said, up till now, the disciples have failed to grasp the significance of who Jesus is. We've seen all along the way how Jesus again and again, he did mighty works that declare who he is. We've seen him face demons. We've seen him face Pharisees. We've seen him had to deal with dim-witted disciples. And all along, he's been demonstrating one thing his identity. He is the divine servant. Now, to be fair to the disciples, they have come a long way, and we're going to see that they finally do get it this morning, and you might be tempted to think, well, it took you long enough. But let's be honest, and this is my big idea of the sermon today. Biblical truth, spiritual truth happens progressively. Would you agree with that? I would even say it this way. Discipleship happens progressively. Our insight into the truth of God comes gradually. We don't come to become believers in Jesus and suddenly are zapped with all of the spiritual knowledge that we need. That's not the way it works. God grows us over time. We need multiple touches of his grace. We need multiple touches of his wisdom over the course of our entire life lives. Discipleship happens progressively. So let's work through this passage. If you haven't already, please turn to Mark chapter 8. We're going to do verses 22 through 30. And I have three points that I want to bring out from our text, and the first is this. We're going to see the illustration of the blind man. The illustration of the blind man. Excuse me. I'm going to begin in verse 22 again. And they came to Bethsaida. 
And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now we're in Bethsaida. Prior to this, in Mark's gospel, we haven't ever been to Bethsaida, but the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 took place near here. And afterward, you may remember the disciples attempted to sail to Bethsaida, but they ended up in Gennesaret. And it's very probable that you have many people who ate the meal of the feeding of the 5,000 who lived in Bethsaida. It's very probable that Jesus was mingling with those whom he fed. Now this, just so you know, Bethsaida was a town at the northeastern tip of the Sea of Galilee. I brought a map to show you exactly where it is. And John, in John 1.44, tells us that Bethsaida was the birthplace of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. Peter. Jesus comes to Bethsaida, which is likely means he's come back to Jewish country, although there is some debate. Bethsaida was right there on the border. It could have been in Jewish country or Gentile country. But he's been there, and, he sa- and the people bring to him this blind man. Now, something that's interesting with this miracle, there are several parallels between this story and the healing of the deaf and mute man in chapter 7. Maybe you notice them. In both cases, the one who needed healing was brought to Jesus by his friends. He didn't go out and seek Jesus. He was brought to Jesus by his friends. Verse 23 tells us another parallel. You may remember that Jesus chose to lead the deaf man away from the crowds. And he does the same thing here with the blind man. He leads him actually out of the village. Now, likely the reason that Jesus is doing this is that he doesn't want to draw attention to the miracle. And the reason I say that is because at verse 46, after he heals the man, Jesus tells him, don't even enter the village. He wants him to completely avoid the village. And we've seen that behavior from Jesus before. Now, the motivation behind Jesus' secrecy, though, that's a little unclear. If he's back in in Jewish country, why is he concealing this? Why is he trying to kind of keep this under wraps? We previously saw while he was in Gentile country that he did try to conceal himself at times. And that same thing could be going on here as he's making his way back into Israel. Maybe he's trying to just conceal it. We're not sure. Another thought is that maybe Jesus led the man outside the city to give him personal attention. One-on-one, I'm going to do something for you. Now, how does he do it? He leads the man out of the village, and then look at the rest of verse 23. And when he had spit on his eyes, does that strike you as weird? Don't raise your hand, but has anyone ever been spit in the face? That's not a compliment. Keep reading, though. He had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him and asked him, do you see anything? Now, except for Jesus laying on his hands, everything else in that verse is weird. It's different. Jesus is spitting directly on the person. Now, we did see Jesus use saliva in chapter 7. Do you remember when he touched the the deaf and mute man's ears and his tongue? He used saliva, and in that scenario, I I communicated to you that it was likely what Jesus was doing was communicating to a deaf man what he was about to do. But that's not the case here. The man can hear. He doesn't need Jesus spitting in his face to communicate anything. What's going on? Well, 
Something interesting in the ancient world. Saliva was regarded as containing the life force of a person. It was believed that saliva could convey power to others. I know that seems like a weird concept to us, but that was something they believed back then. And additionally, saliva was highly regarded if it was from a powerful person. So Herod's saliva was more important than just a common person. And that's a weird concept to us. And I'm not saying that the Bible teaches that, but what I believe is going on here is that Jesus is using a mode of communication this man would have understood to impart to him that he is about to bring life to his dead eyes. I believe he's using something that they would have understood to say to him, I'm about to do something for you. So he spits, then he touches the man, and then Jesus does something that he's not done before. He asks him, do you see anything? Not once that we've seen in the book of Mark has Jesus done a healing and then asked him, did it work? He didn't touch the leper and say, are you better now? He didn't touch the mute man, a deaf man, and said, can you hear and speak now? He never touched a dead person and said, are you alive now? But here he says, do you see anything? Why? Why is he doing this? Well, I'll come back to that. We'll see in a minute. But first of all, look at verse 24. And he, this is the blind man. And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Does that put a funny image in your head? Kind of puts a funny image in my head. And it's suggestive that maybe the man here had not been born blind. Because if you think about it, how would he know what trees look like if he'd been born blind? Maybe he wasn't born blind. And maybe what he's seeing here isn't necessarily trees, but it's the best description he could make. Maybe what he sees is just a bunch of blurry objects. And if you take into account the, the, the kind of the the colors that they wore, the neutral colors they wore, browns and grays. Maybe he's just seeing a bunch of blurry browns and grays and they look kind of like stumps. Who knows? But obviously, he can't see right. It didn't work. So then look at verse 25. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. So for a second time, Jesus puts his hands on this blind man. And as noted in in previous healings, by the way, Jesus almost always touches the affected area. And this time, the passage tells us that the blind man, his vision was restored and he saw everything clearly. Now, the question that's on your mind, why did Jesus' miracle not work the first time? Why didn't it work? We've never seen this before. We've never seen Jesus take more than one time to heal a person. What's going on? Is Jesus waning in strength? Is he tired? Difficulty focusing? Is the blind man's disorder a more difficult healing than, say, raise somebody from the dead? I would submit to you the answer to those questions is a solid I believe what's going on here is that Jesus is using the opportunity to heal this blind man as an illustration of the disciples. Let me explain. This story of the blind man comes right off the heels of the scenario where the disciples were arguing about bread. Remember that? 
They failed to understand Jesus' warning and they were arguing about bread. And Jesus says to them at the end of that, do you not yet understand? Their hearts were hardened. They were spiritually dull of understanding. And after that incident, we get this two-stage healing of the blind man. I believe you could call this, this healing of the blind man a parable of sorts, an illustration of the partial insight, this partial spiritual sight of the disciples. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that this healing of the blind man didn't happen. I'm not saying it wasn't a historical incident. I believe it was. What I'm simply saying is that I believe Jesus took this opportunity to heal this man in a fashion to demonstrate where the disciples and by extension, the people, the crowd that followed Jesus, where they are in their understanding of who Jesus is. The disciples and the crowd, they have an understanding of Jesus, but you see, it's fuzzy. Their understanding of Jesus isn't clear. Like the blind man who sees people that look like trees, the disciples and the people see Jesus in a distorted way. Not only is this story of the blind man an illustration of the disciples, but by extension, it's an illustration of us because discipleship, spiritual insight happens progressively. Growing in Christ is a process. We take the first step, of course, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, when we put our trust in him as our savior, but that's only the beginning. For the rest of our lives, we'll be learning of the greatness of God and the depth of how the gospel relates to our lives. For the rest of our lives, we'll be learning about the greatness of God, but, but I got news for you. It's not just for the rest of your life on earth. For all eternity in heaven, you and I will be learning about the greatness of God. We will be learning about his goodness. We will never fully un understand every facet of the character of God. We'll never fully understand the depth of the impact of the gospel. The truth is, we are and always will be works in progress from now throughout all eternity. Now sometimes, this is true for me, maybe it's true for you, sometimes I think we get discouraged about where we are in our spiritual maturity process. We wanna be so much more mature in the faith than we are. But I wanna, I wanna impart an encouraging word to you because the truth is this, if you are following Jesus, to the best of your ability, if you're pursuing him, if you're repenting of sin, if you're fighting temptation, then I've got news for you. You're right where God wants you to be. He's got you right where he wants you. And don't worry, the, the spiritual maturity will come, but it doesn't come overnight. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who may or may not have been a believer, nonetheless translated this verse. He didn't write this verse, he translated it, and the rhyme goes like this. Though the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Though with patience he stands waiting, with exactness grinds he all. What does that mean? It simply means that God is working. He is working on you. He is working on me. He just works at his pace. Of course, there are times that God does a miraculous and instantaneous work in people's lives. I'm sure you've heard the story, so have I. Maybe you have even experienced a miraculous, instantaneous work of the Lord, and if that's true, hallelujah. But that's not the norm. The mills of God grind slowly, 
yet they grind exceedingly small. What does that mean? That means, in other words, they grind finely. They grind smoothly. They grind at the consistency that we need for real, genuine change. That's what God is doing. And our response, as God continually works on us, our response should be one of patience and trust. Patience that God is working, even when it doesn't seem like it, he is working at the pace that he chooses to work and trust that he is molding us, he is shaping us into the men and women that he wants us to become. The illustration of the blind man, it took multiple touches to heal the blind man It's going to take multiple touches throughout our life to bring us to the understanding, the spiritual understanding and maturity that God wants us to be. Point number two, the distortion of the people. We've seen the illustration of the blind man. Now we're going to look at the distortion of the people. Look at verse 27 with me. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples... Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. Now before this, you know, I can't help but wonder, it doesn't say anything about the blind man receiving his sight and then going and telling everybody. Did somebody actually obey Jesus? I like to think so, but we're not told. Maybe that's what happened. But after that, Jesus and his disciples head north. They actually go back into Gentile country, into Caesarea Philippi, which is about 25 miles from Bethsaida. Now, Mark doesn't actually say that they went to the city, Caesarea Philippi, only the surrounding villages. So we're not sure if Jesus and his disciples actually went to the city, and the events that happen now, the events that happen in the next chapter, they're not given a specific location. So it could have been that they go to Caesarea Philippi, or they go to the villages, and they come right back into Galilee. We're just not sure exactly. But on the way... They have a conversation. Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, this is different from the normal rabbi-disciple relationship. Usually, in a rabbi-disciple relationship, the disciples were asking the questions and the rabbi was answering questions. But Jesus, Jesus ain't no typical rabbi. He's trying to provoke a confession of faith from his disciples. And if you look back, Throughout Jesus' interactions with his disciples, he's always trying to teach them something. He's always trying to incite them toward faith. Every time they ask him a parable, he'll explain it to them. When the feeding of the, during the feeding of the 5,000, it's Jesus who's trying to get the disciples to respond in faith. Same thing with the feeding of the 4,000. He tried to use the situation with the Pharisees last week to point out how unbelief spreads like leaven. And now he's doing the same thing. He's asking them a question to get them to think. What are people saying about me? They say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're one of the prophets. The crowds were confused about Jesus' identity. They were distorted. They attributed to him the identity of John the Baptist, Elijah, or one of the prophets. Now, we've actually dealt with this. You may remember that in the middle of chapter 6, we dealt with the death of John the Baptist. And in that passage, Mark told us that the crowd identified Jesus as either John, Elijah, or one of the prophets. Now, John the Baptist, it's interesting that the crowd would identify him with John the Baptist because John and Jesus were alive at the same time. But you might remember that's what Herod thought. 
Herod thought that Jesus was John because Herod's conscience was pricked by the fact that he had put John to death. Now, others thought he was Elijah, and the reason that they thought that is because God had promised to send Elijah before the great and awesome day of the Lord. That's recorded in Malachi 4, 5. The people were actually expecting Elijah to show up. Even the scribes were teaching that Elijah was gonna show up. And the ironic thing is, the Gospel of Luke, chapter one, verse 17, clarified for us that John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus even says that very same thing. So if they were looking for Elijah, they should have seen the Elijah's spirit and power on John the Baptist. Now, another opinion of the crowd is that Jesus was one of the prophets, like maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah had risen from the dead and was going around ministering again. But the point is, the crowd's view of Jesus was fuzzy. They identified Jesus as a man of God, yes, but that's a distorted picture. Just like the blind man again saw people that look like trees. They're not seeing Jesus correctly. And that, my friends, is a problem. Really, it's a big problem. Really, that's the biggest problem a person can have. When we are distorted over the identity of Jesus, our eternal destiny is at stake. Who do you say he is? More on that in a minute. As Christians, though, let me say this. As Christians, we can have our own distortions of the truth. Maybe we know who Jesus is. We've got that down. We've accepted him as our Savior. Awesome. But we can still have our own distortions of the truth. And these distortions can come from many places. They can come from our upbringing, from our education, from our friendships, from our own misconceptions. You know, a lot of times, the truth is distorted simply because we're confused. When I was growing up, one of the things that I struggled with when it came to my spiritual walk was the idea that God knows everything. Not just past and present, I, I didn't really question that, but specifically I was confused, does God really know everything about the future? Does God know what's going to happen? Does he really know every detail down to our choices, down to our thoughts for all eternity? I really struggled with that as a teenager. And so I kind of came to this conclusion that maybe God doesn't really know all the future, but since he knows all the present, he's a pretty good guesser at what's going to happen in the future. Well, praise the Lord, through good biblical teaching, that misconception was corrected. The Bible is clear, and if you're confused on that, let me just share with you. God is omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all things, or he would not be God. Say, I want a verse on that. Great, I'll give you two. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5, it writes, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139.4. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Praise God. He knows everything. So we can be confused. You know, another thing that keeps the truth distorted is our own pride. We can be stuck in a place where we don't want to see the truth because we like things the way they are. We like what we believe and we don't want to change it. Recently, I read a story of a seminary professor who was challenging a student on a particular biblical belief. And the professor was using passage after passage to support his point, and he was right on. 
But the student was stubborn and didn't want to give in. And in fact, the, the more they debated, the more frustrated the student got until the student finally said, well, that might be biblical, but it's not Baptist. <laughs> you see, he pridefully clung to his denominational belief even when faced with opposing biblical truth. Don't let pride stand in the way of seeing your own distortions of the truth. So let me ask, what misconceptions does God want to correct in your life? What distortions of his word does he want to clear up? Let me challenge you. Spend some time this week asking the Lord those very questions and see where he leads you. We've been looking at the illustration of the blind man. We look at the distortion of the people. I've got one more point for you this morning. Let's look at the clarity of the disciples. The clarity of the disciples. Verse 29. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, Jesus takes the question, what do the people say that I am? He takes that and he directs it to the disciples. And this is emphasized in the Greek. The translation could have been, but you, who do you say that I am? Almost as if Jesus is drawing a contrast, a contrast between the crowds, those who really don't know him apart from his miracles, from those who've walked closely with him, from those who've walked intimately. Who do you say that I am? Who do you, my closest friends, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter stands up and answers, you are the Christ. Boom, mic drop. Thank you, Peter. We got there. It has taken eight chapters of the book of Mark, but we have been driving to that point. We have been working toward the identity of Jesus. And by the way, in the book of Mark, this is the first time a human being has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. Mark opened his book that way in chapter 1, verse 1. Believe it or not, we have heard from the mouths of demons that Jesus is the Holy One of God. But now finally we hear it from a human being. A declaration that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what in the world does that word Christ actually mean? Well, I'll tell you this. It's a title. It's not his last name. Okay? It's a title. Christ is a translation of the Hebrew Mashach or Messiah. It means anointed one. The word Mashach was actually used in the Old Testament whenever a priest or a king was anointed with oil. In Exodus 29.7, Aaron is anointed with oil. He is Mashach or Messiah, you might say. And that same word is used in 1 Samuel 10 when David is anointed king of Israel. The commentator David E. Garland writes this on that word. The word carries with it the idea of chosenness by God, consecration to his service, and endowment with his power to accomplish the task assigned. Now, Messiah was never used in the Old Testament as a title. This messianic idea began when God promised to establish David's house as a kingdom. David was promised that an heir would reign on his throne forever. 
And then during the intertestamental times, that period between the Old and the New Testament, the word Messiah took on that form of a title and referred to the one who was to come as David's heir and restore Israel. The Jews, during that time, they were looking for the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. And what Peter says here is, you are that anointed one. You are the Christ. You're David's heir. You're the one we've been looking for. And Israel had been waiting for this king to show up for hundreds of years. In fact, November, or Numbers twenty four seventeen reads, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Israel had been looking for this king. Peter recognizes this is the king. And by the way, Peter here is speaking on behalf of all the disciples. They've all come to this point, or Jesus would not have warned all of them not to speak of it. We might think, as we look at the disciples, we look at Peter's confession, we might think, you know what, it's about time. But let's not be too hard on them. And let's be honest, we're slow to get it too. Discipleship happens progressively. The point is, they have recognized that Jesus is the king. And they're right. And their perception of Jesus is clear as far as who he he is. But their view of him is still only partial. See, the parable, or the story of the blind man, it points both directions. It points where the disciples had been up to this point. Now things are clear, but even though things are clear, there's still some fuzziness about what Jesus has come to do. But before we get there, let's finish up this passage. Look with me at verse 30. Peter says, you are the Christ, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now that word charge there, that literally means rebuke. And this doesn't mean Jesus rebuked them because Peter was wrong. It means that Jesus was intense with them. He was intense with them that they should tell no one. It's likely he's saying something like, you are under the strictest confidence to not share this information. Why? If he is the king, he's the one that's come to save the Jews. Why not share that? Because if they share it now, then the Jews might be tempted to take Jesus and make him king. And if that happened, he couldn't fulfill his ultimate mission. Yes, he is the king. Yes, he's come to reign forever, but it's not time for the people to know yet. He has something to do first. He has to go to the cross. And that's what the disciples don't get, not yet. He is divine. He is the king, but he's also a servant. He has come to serve. He served the people through his teaching and through his miracles, and now he's about to serve them through his greatest act of service. He's about to go to the cross, and the disciples don't yet get that. They don't get why he's come, though they may now get who he is. Discipleship happens progressively. You know, there are moments in our lives when we are hit with a dose of clarity that radically opens our minds. That ever happened to you? 
just boom, insight. When I was in college, I had a professor that nobody liked. He had a strong personality. He would call on you in class by name to answer a question he asked. His expectations seemed very high. As I look back now, they weren't really that high, but as a young freshman, they seemed high to me. And maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it wasn't the man himself that nobody liked. Maybe it was the fact that his class was at 7.30 in the morning that people didn't like. But anyway... I remember one class period, I'll never forget this, he kept pointing to a truth. He kept pointing to the fact that everything that we have as Christians is because of Christ. That might seem obvious, but he was in Ephesians 1, and he kept saying, in him, because in Ephesians 1, it says, in him, we have an inheritance. In him, we are sealed. And he kept going back and saying, in him, and in him, in him, and it just hit me. Everything that I am as a Christian is all because of Christ. And the significance of all that just hit me with such clarity that I'll never forget that moment. And I've had such moments like that, and I'm sure you've had too, where the Holy Spirit just opens your eyes to something. That's what we want. I love those moments. And as believers in Jesus, we want clarity to the truth of God's word. Does anybody want to be fuzzy on what God's word says? Nobody wants that. We want clarity. How do we get that clarity? How do we get there? Well, I say this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. We get to clarity of God's word, God's truth, by continual exposure to God's truth. It's actually two things. It's continual exposure to God's truth, and it's dependence on the Holy Spirit to make it clear. That's how we get clarity. So even though I've encouraged you time and time again to be in God's word, I'm going to say it again. Be in God's word. It brings such clarity. And if I, if I was to point you to anything else for spiritual insight, I would be in the wrong. Be in God's word. Depend on the spirit for spiritual clarity. Now, Peter here in our text, he exemplifies something. The most important concept that we need to have clarity on is the identity of Jesus Christ. That's the most important concept we need clarity on for anything. Who is this Jesus? Again, that's the question we've been dealing with for almost eight chapters in the book of Mark. And the world, let's be honest, the world offers a lot of explanations. If you go and to ask somebody who's not a Christian who Jesus was, you'll get an explanation. Some say he was a good man. Some say he was a prophet. Some say he was a teacher. And honestly, that sounds a lot like what the people were saying about Jesus in Mark 8. But Peter declared him to be the Christ because he can't be just a man. He can't be just a prophet. He can't be just a teacher. Christ means Messiah, anointed one, who came to rule and reign forever. In Mark 1.15, Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you don't go around saying that if you're just a good man or a prophet. You only say that if you're the king bringing the kingdom. So let me get back to something I said earlier. I said distortion over the identity of Jesus is the biggest problem you can have. So who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Is he just a man to you? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a good moral teacher? My friends, that's not enough. 
If you do not see him as the one and only true God, as the anointed one come to die on a cross and pay the penalty of our sin and rise from the dead on the third day, then your eternal destiny is in jeopardy. I plead with you, respond to Jesus' invitation. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent of your sin, which means to be sorrowful over it and turn from it. Believe in the gospel. You know, through this series, we've used this definition as the gospel. It's the good news that is from God, about God, and leads to salvation. Believe in the gospel, the good news that is from God, about God, and leads to salvation. Believe in the gospel. Believe that Jesus died and rose again to pay the penalty for your sin. Believe that today. Don't wait. Your eternal destiny is at stake. You're not promised tomorrow. If you have more questions about that, I will be here after the service. Please, question, please catch me and talk to me. But my fellow Christians, you have clarity on who Jesus is. Like Peter, you have said, he is the Christ, he is my savior, and I turn to him in repentance and faith. You've done that. Praise God. But you know, like I was saying earlier, we're not always clear on some things. And one of the things that we're not always clear on, even as Christians, is we're not always clear on what he's doing in our lives. We're not always clear on why he allows this or that to happen. We don't always understand his plan for us. It's not always clear. And there are times that we are tempted to question him. There are times we are tempted to doubt that he is good and has our best interest in mind. And I'm just here to tell you, be encouraged. He had a plan for the cross that the disciples did not understand. He has a plan for you. The plan for the cross, it looked bleak, but it did not end in death. It did not end in hopelessness, and his plan for you does not end in hopelessness. He's working. He is always working, and our response should be trust. Remember Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So wherever you are, he has a plan. He has you right in his hands. There's another thing that we can be clear on. We can be clear on who he is we can be clear that he is working for our good, but another point of clarity we can have is that he wants, something, he wants us to do something in the meantime. In our passage, Jesus charged the disciples not to tell anyone he was the Christ because it wasn't time yet. But that time is long past. The time is right. Tell people about Jesus. Don't keep that information to yourself. Spread it. We are not under the charge of Mark 8.30. We are under the commission of Matthew 28.19-20. So tell the world about Jesus. 
Tell them what he's done for you. Declare him openly. Make disciples for Jesus Christ. That is the commission of the church, and it's your privilege to do that, and it's my privilege to do that. We live in a world that is desperate and dying. Will you join me in our privilege to share Jesus with others? Peter said it best, you are the Christ. He is the Christ. And that, my friends, brings great clarity. Yes, discipleship happens progressively. There's still much to learn. But grasping who Jesus is and what he came to do Grasping the gospel, in other words, brings the greatest clarity to our lives. When you grasp the concept of the gospel, that God took your place on the cross, that brings clarity to your life. That helps you put the pieces together of what otherwise would appear meaningless. See, the gospel helps you understand why you are the way you are. The gospel helps you recognize why your life is going the direction it is. The gospel helps you see your true purpose in life. The gospel brings peace. The gospel brings joy. The gospel brings hope. The gospel brings clarity. And the more you grasp the gospel, the more clarity you will have in your life. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Pray with me. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are God. Help us to grasp that more and more. Help the eyes of our hearts to be opened more and more to your truth. Grow our understanding. Grow our desire to know you more and more. Awaken our passion to share your truth with a desperate and dying world. We're called to a mission. That mission is to share the gospel. Help us do just that. Lord, thank you for our study in Mark. Thank you for what you've taught us so far and we look forward to how you will continue to grow us in the weeks and months and years ahead. Thank you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.